2022 and I guarantee you'll be taking away plenty of reading recommendations. Our brilliant guest today is Maggie O'Farrell, the winner of the 2020 Women's Prize for Fiction for her novel Hamnet, a moving exploration of death and grief in Elizabethan England, told through the story of William Shakespeare's real-life son, Hamnet. Maggie is the author of nine novels, the memoir I Am, I Am, I Am, and two children's books, including The Boy Who Lost His Spark, out this October. Her latest novel, The Marriage Portrait, set in Renaissance Italy, is out now. Welcome, Maggie. Thank you so much. It's very nice to be here. Well, you, you're, a, you're a friend of the Women's Prize, so it feels very comfortable. <laughs> it feels like you're right at home. <laughs> oh, well, that's very nice. I feel that too. Well, what was it like when, when you won? Because obviously it was, a, it was a weird year and it wasn't how it's supposed to be. It was 2020. In some ways it felt wider reaching. It felt like more people than ever knew about the Women's Prize because they were sat at home learning about it and, and reading about it. Mm. How, how was that experience? Well, it was very, I mean, I think it must be always very strange to be awarded the prize. And I um, found that on a Zoom call, not not at a big party, you know, I was there when um, when Piranesi won. And, yes. and, and I, I saw her shock and I felt her shock because she looked right. really shocked. And I was really shocked. But actually, in a way, it was quite lucky because, I mean, I had I had absolutely no expectation to win at all. You know, it felt it felt like a win just to be on the shortlist. It felt extraordinary. And to mm-hmm. be on a shortlist with um, Mantel and Evaristo, you know, literary goddesses, it, it never occurred to me that I would <laughs> win. And so, you know, I'd done, I think I'd done an online event with Natalie Haynes and we'd done one together. And then I had a text from the Women's Prize saying, can you just jump back onto a Zoom call? Because we need to ask you something. And I thought, oh, I don't really want to do it. I might just pretend I didn't get the text because I... <laughs> It was quite late at night. Classic Zoom uh, avoidance. And then they said, no, we really need you to come back. So I thought, oh, fine, I'll do it then. And then I and then they told me I'd won. And I was I was so blindsided. Honestly, I I was pretty speechless. So actually, it was lucky because then I had two days to keep it secret. And then I had two days to think about what I would say in my acceptance speech. Because if I'd been at a party and I'd been told that, I would have had literally nothing to say because I was so shocked. That's a good point, actually, because it, mm. it is literally sprung on you in that moment. Yeah, um, terrifying. But, but yeah, congratulations I'm saying it two years <laughs> later, but it's still as potent and pertinent as ever. And what an amazing, amazing accolade. Oh, and so you. I know that books play a big part in your life, obviously, as mm. a writer. But do you find the time to read as well? I do. I always do. I have to be reading. I can't not be. I can't imagine under what circumstances I, I wouldn't ever be reading. And I do actually, I have a really bad insomnia. I've always been a terrible sleeper. And that, of course, has its downsides. But its upsides is you get quite a lot of reading time. So I do, I try not to get too annoyed by being awake in the night. And I just, I just use it to read a book. And what sort of books do you gravitate towards for your insomnia specifically? Well, I mean, I I do tend to read fiction, mostly. Fiction is my big love. Um, but I do read some nonfiction and I read short stories and sometimes poetry. And it really varies, actually. It varies. And sometimes I will read classics or I'll reread classics or reread books that I've loved. And I also really like to read lots of new books. I like to see what, see what other um, writers are, are coming up with. Mm, well, you've got quite a, an eclectic mix of fiction that you sent us today for your bookshelfy books so let's dive straight into them with your first which is where the god of love hangs out by amy bloom in this heartbreaking book amy bloom explores the unexpected patterns that love 
and its absence weave into our lives. A young woman struggles to come to terms with her friend's murder. A daughter returns to her problematic father's house to care for him in his final days. And two middle-aged friends, married to other people, find themselves irresistibly drawn to one another. I mean, I'm obsessed with any exploration of love. Um, But what did you love about this book? I find Amy Bloom a really forensic writer. And I think it's no coincidence that she's a psychotherapist as well as being a writer. Uh, And that gives her a sort of several added layers of perspicuity, I think, and understanding into human nature. And she writes so beautifully and she puts so much into her short stories. You know, she puts the amount of material in a short story that other writers might spin out over a whole novel or even possibly two novels. (laughs) She's just incredibly generous, I think, with her material and with her insight. And I particularly love the way she often returns to characters later in life. So often she'll write a short story in one collection and then in a second collection or a third collection, she will return to those characters uh, maybe several years down the line. And that's fascinating because it feels, I mean, obviously it isn't like a novel because the, you know a short story is a completely different medium. But the way she weaves back and you get these snapshots of these characters and you also see how the events from maybe the first or the second story play out later in life. I think she's an absolute genius and I always feel that not enough people know about her. And this is one of those books that I eagerly press into other people's hands. And it is one of the ones I return to a lot. I reread it and I reread it. There's an incredible economy about her writing and there's an awful lot which is left unsaid. So I think she's very, she's a real mistress of the white space on the page, the silences in a story. When you read and reread, do you see things, find things, learn things that you hadn't seen before? Yes, absolutely. And also I think what's interesting is that you can reread books at different stages in your own life and somehow the emphases which you see are are often different. Yeah, it depends on your experience, doesn't it? I mean, you might have no prism through which to understand these concepts and then all of a sudden it all changes. And I think that happens especially with love, especially with love because those chemicals in our brains are so powerful and um, they they, they cause us to read in such different ways depending on how we're feeling. Are there any um, characters in in your novels that you would like to return to in the way that Amy Balloon does? I don't know. I mean, I never have, but you never know. I mean, you never quite know what's coming. I, I doubt it because obviously I, I, don't, I don't write short stories. I can't write short stories. You know, I don't think just because you can write a novel necessarily means you can write a short story. I think it's a whole other skill. And sometimes I've tried to begin writing a short story and then two years later there I am putting the full stop, full stop yeah. on a full-length novel. I don't know <laughs> so why. It's got a bit long now. <laughs> yeah, exactly. A very long story. For whatever reason, my imagination doesn't work within that form. So I don't think so. But then again, you never know. But I think she she pulls it off so brilliantly. I think I think she can do it. And I think obviously Elizabeth Strout can do it, but she does it in a novel form. But the Cadillac Chronicles, they return to the same chronicles. Someone like Jane Gardam, she's written about the same group of characters and something like the old Filth trilogy. I think when it's done well, it it works brilliantly. But uh, I've no plans at the moment. But you never know. You never know what's ahead. It's just different for different writers. That's that's why writing is so rich and and brilliant, is that we have all of this variety. I mean, do you ever find yourself writing like other writers that you admire, uh, like Amy Bloom? I know a lot of writers can't read fiction at the same time as writing because they find some of those techniques or stylistic elements creeping in, seeping in. 
No, I don't. I mean, I think I think I would, you know, because it, the, Amy Bloom's stories come from the mind of Amy Bloom or whatever. And so, no, I don't worry about that, actually. I, it isn't something that I think, it's not something that I fear. And also, I would never not read. Like I said, you know, I, I'd feel like a musician who never listens to music. It, it would just be, it would be really wrong. And actually, you know, it's such a, especially when you are at a certain stage in your book, it's such a relief just to sink into somebody else's world and you don't you're just receiving their wisdom and receiving their word and words and their artistry. The only time I find it difficult to read an actual novel is when I I'm just about to finish one of my own books, just, just, just about when you're putting the kind of final edits in and you're almost I think it's almost because you're holding the whole length of this work inside your head and it's it's like balancing a huge and very full plate of food on one finger yeah. <laughs> you can't you can't let it tip and at that point I always read poetry or even a short story but that's the only time and at every other stage and that's only you know for a month or two probably in the whole process I've never thought every other of it stage like I'm reading novels the whole length of it the whole the whole yeah. weight of it precariously balanced inside of you how did you first start in writing can you remember the first thing that you wrote I can't really remember a time without the urge to write even when I was really quite small when I was probably five or six I've got notebooks I've got one notebook that I wrote when I was probably five or six I mean it's full of absolute drivel um (laughs) mostly about cats (laughs) (laughs) but uh but it's clear that I had that urge you know it's called graphomania the urge to record things to write it down and I used to spend all my pocket money on stationery I still do actually yeah I found this beautiful in fact I can show you this beautiful vintage fountain pen in the charity <gasps> shop the other day, which I'm so excited by. Oh. I know, and it's got a gold nib. I realised when I got home, oh, I bought it. Oh, Maggie! It's so beautiful, isn't it? I'm so excited. That's gorgeous. Um, it doesn't work yet, but I'm going to see if I can get it working. Uh, anyway, so no, I do. I just always want, I, when I was little, I used to spend all whatever pocket money I had, which wasn't much, on paper and pens and crayons and everything, just because I, I just had that. I don't know where it came from or why. But I think I just I don't remember a time when I didn't have that urge to write things down. So I wrote a lot of really, really quite horrific poetry in my teens. <laughs> so uh, let's just say I'm not going to be publishing my juvenilia anytime soon. And then I, I think I probably started writing with quite serious intent when I was in my early to mid 20s. Just seeing that fountain pen has brought back so many memories. The first day of school, we had to have a fountain pen. I've not used a fountain yeah, pen yeah. since, but seeing that has made me want one again. Get the cartridges. Because I, I, I had them at school. Yeah, we had to use them at school. And I um, and then I haven't used them for years, but I've started using them again recently. Just because I started, I suddenly realised that throwing out plastic pens and throwing up, I just hate it. I got sick of it. So now I have, yeah, I have refillable biros and fountain pens everywhere. I mean, it causes a massive mess and you get ink all over your fingers, but I quite like that. Brilliant. Well, your second bookshelfy book is Flesh and Blood by Michelle Roberts. In this wildly inventive exploration of the mother-daughter relationship, the androgynous narrator Freddie may have committed matricide, a lost daughter is found in a freak show, and another is saved from the Spanish Inquisition. The narrative spirals from the present day to the 16th century and back again. Maggie, why did you pick this book? I absolutely love this book and I can't really understand why it's not better known than it is and why it's not hailed as this incredible modern classic because I think it really is I think it's I think she is with this book in particular and I think she often does she's often pushing the boundaries of what narrative is capable of but this book in particular I think is probably her most exciting and she's invented this completely new structure which is a bit like 
a it's actually kind of mirrored you get these sort of chinese boxes of narratives inside narratives inside other narratives and right at the middle it starts going back out again so you so you greet that you meet the other characters um for, for the second time in a sense a bit like i suppose a bit like amy bloom in a way and and it ranges all over geography and all over history and the characters they almost sort of hear each other's echoes through time and it like you say it examines lots of questions about gender and women's bodies i mean it's just an absolutely incredible read i mean i read it it came out i think probably in the in the 80s or the early 90s i'm not quite sure and i read it straight away and it is one of the books that i return to again and again it's just so exciting even though it's 20 years old 30 years old it feels like something that could have been written yesterday at the same time as feeling like something that could have been written 100 years ago it's got an incredible timeless quality to it style and structure aside Thematically, were you drawn to the mother-daughter relationship? Is that something that you found interesting because it's so beautifully explored? Yes. I mean, I think Roberts writes mothers and daughters and sisters extremely well. So, yeah, I mean, I think it's an absolutely flawless and brilliant and inventive book. Originally published in 1977. Oh, there we go. Wow. Yeah, ages ago. Yeah. I was five. (laughs) But isn't that an amazing thing for her writing to be so timeless? And and you write books set in both modern and historical settings, although obviously usually not within the same book. Do you find find either more compelling? Like, do do you get more lost in a historical setting, for example? I don't, I mean, I wouldn't say I prefer one over the other. I think, I mean, the last two books I've written have been historical novels, certainly. But in a sense, when I sat down to write both my recent book, The Marriage Portrait, and also Hamlet, I steered myself away from thinking I am writing a historical capital H novel, capital N. I think just because it would have given me quite a lot of vertigo but also I just wanted to approach it as I would any other novel I wanted it not to be to self-consciously write in any kind of particular different way because I was writing about the past you know I do believe that obviously the world changes and the world changes rapidly and all the time but at the same time I don't think that human hearts and human spirits change at all so I wanted to approach the people in the characters in these books even though they're set 400 500 years ago just as I would any other character. Yeah, I mean, in your last two novels, you picked out female figures from history, which we know little about. Shakespeare's wife, Agnes Hathaway, Lucrezia, third daughter of Cosimo de' Medici. How do you weave together such real-seeming characters from the tiny fragments that we know? How much world-building is there? Both Agnes or Anne Hathaway and Lucrezia there's not an awful lot known about them. I mean, Lucrezia, we know when she was born and we know that she, at 13, was betrothed to the man who was supposed to marry her older sister, but her older sister sadly died. So Lucrezia was ushered in as this kind of stand-in bride. And we know she went to live with him in Ferrara at 15 and we know that she died a year later. But there are, in her parents' letters, her other siblings are mentioned quite a lot, but she doesn't really get much of a look in, unfortunately. So I always came away with this impression of her as slightly overlooked and underloved but in a sense, you know, I think that kind of, and it's a, in a similar way with Hathaway, actually, because it, her birth isn't even recorded. She, she was born before uh, parish records began. And we know that she married William and we know when she had her children and we know when she died. And that's it's not a huge amount really else about her. She's quite a shadowy figure, but that had, hadn't stopped a lot of biographers and historians and literary scholars 
from vilifying and criticising her and forming this one single, very frustrating narrative about her, that she was this older, illiterate peasant who had lured this boy genius into marriage. And, you know, he hated her and he had to run away from London to get away from her and he only left her a second best bed, blah, 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 blah. And I just was really sick of that narrative. And I thought, there's no evidence for any of this at all. There's no evidence that he hated her. You know, at the end of his career, he went back to Stratford to live with her. He sent every single penny he earned in London back to Stratford. You know, that's those are not the acts of a man who loathed his wife. So I just, in a sense, you know, that those kind of gaps, I think, are frustrating for a biographer or a historian. But for a novelist, actually, those gaps are quite enticing. They form this kind of vacuum that you're able to step forward and fill with whatever story you yourself want to tell. Because obviously, my Agnes and my Lucrezia are fictional characters. They are they have the names and the framework of real people. But other than that, I I just made it all up. <laughs> yeah, um, we 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 talked very briefly there about the mother daughter relationship in Flesh and Blood. Your first children's book, Where Snow Angels Go, was also born of a real life experience uh, during a medical emergency with your own daughter. Can you tell us a little bit about that? Yes. Yeah, so one of my children suffers with very severe allergies and she has um, suffered anaphylactic shock more times than I care to even think about now. So one of the symptoms, one of the lesser known symptoms of anaphylaxis is that you get very, very cold and you can get very disorientated. And that's a sign that your blood pressure is dropping, that you're in danger of having a cardiac arrest. So it's always very serious when you realise that your child has got cold. And so we were in an ambulance and she was feeling very cold and I said to her just and she she was panicking because she, obviously she was feeling awful and everybody was rushing around her and she was really scared. And so I said to her, I just made up on the spur of the moment. I just said, don't worry about being cold. It's just a it's just a snow angel who's here and he's your guardian angel and he's wrapping his wings around you. And that's why you're cold. And he became um, a character that we would talk about quite a lot because she wanted to know more. She said, well, where's he come from? You know, why is he here? What's what is it? What's he doing here? You know, I've discovered a lot if you're as a parent of somebody, particularly with somebody who has additional or high level of need. There are so many, obviously, that, you know, the additional needs label is a very important one because there are so much, there's so much additional, so much further that you have to go in a sense as a parent. And of course, you know, I'm perfectly happy to do that. That's the price for having her. I'm more than happy to pay it, of course. But one of the things I've realised is that actually making up a story or making up a narrative for young children is a very good way of explaining something which is really hard for a young child to grasp, you know, why they might be in pain or why they might be suffering or why they're in danger. So, telling a story in which is sort of metaphorical about what's happening to them is, is a really good way for them also, you know, to understand and also distract and soothe them. So I made up the snow angel for her. And then actually, I, not long afterwards, I was off on a book tour and she wanted to know more about it. So I was writing, I wrote chapters for her and posted them to her. And then when I got back, she said, I really want to see what he looks like. Can you, can you draw a picture of him? And I said, and I'm absolutely rubbish at drawing if my life depended upon it. Um, I couldn't do it. And I'm not sure under what circumstances it would depend on it. But anyway, I would, I would have no luck. And so I, uh, I thought, well, actually, maybe I'll, you know, send it to a publisher and see if they can find the right illustrator, which is what happened. And I was paired with the absolute living genius, Daniela Yaglenka Terrazzini, who uh, brought into being, who manifested this incredible snow angel for us. And so no, it, it was a really lovely experience of bringing it into being, that whole book. What a beautiful way to bring a character into the world. 
Bailey's is proudly supporting the Women's Prize for Fiction by helping showcase incredible writing by remarkable women, celebrating their accomplishments and getting more of their books into the hands of more people. Looking for a treat to pair with your favourite book? Bailey's is the perfect accompaniment to enjoy either over ice or over coffee. There are no better friendships than those formed around brilliant books. And since you're listening, we're guessing you love books as much as we do. The Women's Prize has created an exclusive community that gives you a bookish backstage pass, offering surprises and freebies, plus unmissable reading recommendations and book chat from our founder friends, including me, Vic Hope. Search for Women's Prize Friend to become a friend today. We cannot wait to meet you. We move on now, Maggie, to your third book, which is Good Behaviour by Molly Keane, a tragic comedy set in Ireland after the First World War. This book is the story of Arun St. Charles, a large and unlovely young woman who is part of an aristocratic Irish family and is locked out of real life by ritual patterns of good behaviour. But crumbling codes of conduct cannot hope to save the members of the St. Charles family from their own unruly and inadmissible desires. Tell us a bit about this book. When did you first read it? I first read this when I was quite young, probably a teenager. My parents had quite a lot of Molly Keane in the house. And I've since gone on to read all her books, actually, or everything that's available. And I, this one is my absolute favourite. It was written, published when she was 80. And she'd had a gap in her career of about, I think, about 20 years. And she used to publish under the name MJ Farrell because it was considered quite shameful for a woman of her class, the Anglo-Irish class, to be a writer of all things. But this is the first one she published under her own name and it was shortlisted for the Booker Prize. There is a story, actually, that she had pushed it in a drawer. I don't know if this is true. I would love it if it is true that she'd written it and shoved it in a drawer and the actress Peggy Ashcroft was staying with her and happened to be sleeping in that room, discovered it, read it overnight and came down in the morning and said, Molly, you have to publish this. I hope it's true too. <laughs> I hope it's true. How can it not be? It's like such a that. great story. Yeah. Like, I love the idea that you know, she was kind of, you know, maybe not being able to sleep and she thought, I wonder what's in the drawer. And then, and then coming across this manuscript and it opens with this most astonishing scene of matricide and Arun is serving her mother, who's unwell in bed and elderly, rabbit moose. And I have to say, of all the fictional dishes, <laughs> that's one of the most revolting. There's just two words that should never go together. Not right, does it? No. <laughs> and it, and it's, it's such an awful dish that she, the mother dies. But it's, it's just an absolutely brilliant novel. I mean, Molly Keane is an astonishingly gifted writer at, but like you say, at tragedy and also comedy and the fusion of the two. There's something incredible about the dialogue in this novel and how much how little is said between these people because they're all obsessed with good behaviour and front and appearance and what's actually going on in the room. The sort of disconnect between what's being said and what's happening is so enormous because this is a world in which boys are whipped for reading poetry and children are forced to go house riding and hunting at a really young age. They go, they go to boarding school. They're, they're so distant. But at the same time, it's all about appearance. And the servants in these large houses are so hungry, they're forced to eat laundry starch to survive, whereas the dogs are indulged and fed chicken. I mean, it, it's such a strange and peculiar world, but she leads the reader into it by the hand. And it's a world of massive hypocrisy and, and also just emotional suppression, emotional illiteracy. You said that you've read and reread Molly Keane, and not just this, as you said, you think you've probably read every single one of her books. 
at a young age as well. What, what do you think resonated so much with you as a teenager? What, what do you think really gripped Maggie at that time? Uh, I think it was partly the world, you know, because I, I mean, obviously I, I know Ireland quite well. You know, I was born there and we used to visit it all the time, although I was brought up mostly in Britain. But this was an island I did not know at all. And it's such a fascinating example of world building, just as I was saying, these old crumbling houses which were falling apart and, of course, being riven and destroyed by political discontent. And this idea that they were a kind of class of people or a breed of people who were dying out, you know, this kind of very, very privileged Anglo-Irish families. They sort of outlived their their tenure (laughs) in a way. Um, And I think that really fascinated me, just the, the whole houses and the weirdness of it all and the hunt bulls. And, you know, this was all so completely alien to me and not an island that I recognised. But so in a sense, it was a kind of location that I understood, but a world that I knew nothing about at all. And also the way they speak to each other is so horrifying. There's a moment at which one of the family members, without giving too much away, dies, a young person dies. And after the funeral, they're all absolutely devastated. And there's an incredible line, and I'm probably misquoting it badly. It says something like, they gave each other, we all gave each other quick warning glances, who would behave the best? And the idea that these grieving, absolutely heartbroken people couldn't even express to each other their, their, you know, their sadness and their grief and their devastation. They had to, you know, the, the, the ideal thing to do in that scenario in their world is to not talk about it at all, be brisk and move along. It's, it's, it's an astonishing scene. And you live in a, in a world of writing. Your husband, William Sutcliffe, also writes novels. What's it like having mm. a fellow writer in the house with you? <laughs> I mean, the thing is, we're, we're just so used to it. You know, it just feels normal to us. And actually, in a sense, you know, I'm sure it's like any other couple who work in the same area. There's just a lot less to explain somehow, you know, and, mm. and we're both each other's first reader. He always reads probably my second or my third draft. And he can be pretty mean, actually. Oh, really? I mean, you need it, you know. I mean, what you do, it would be really nice if you wrote a first or second draft and you gave it to someone. They said it's absolutely perfect, don't change a word. But, of course, that's never going to happen. And, actually, it's good that it doesn't happen because your work is very far from done at those early drafts. Um, so it's good. There was one time when, I think it was when I wrote my book, a book called um, The Vanishing Act of Esme Lennox. He, <laughs> he read it and he said, it's okay, but you have to rewrite half of it which was a bit of a blow. We did have a couple of slightly silent, frosty dinners. But he was right, annoyingly, and I, I, I did need to write half of it. <laughs> Do your kids um, gravitate towards writing? Um, I don't know. It's a bit early to say. My son's about to go off to university, but he's going to study politics. That's his passion. And, I mean, they're all, they're all big readers, actually, which I think is I'm just very happy about. You know, they all like to read. I mean, it, you know, it comes and goes. I think there are times, particularly in the teens, I think, where sometimes people might veer away from books. But I think the key, I don't know, the key as a parent is not to panic too much and just think they'll come back to it. And also just to accept, I think, that any reading is reading. So if your teen is choosing to read a magazine or, you know, an online, whatever, that's OK. Just let them do it and, you know, don't force it on them, I think. And that, and you can, one of the things I found quite handy with my son is occasionally I would select a book and I'd leave it really casually on the coffee table and I'd say to him, whatever you do, don't read that book because it's too uh, grown up for you. Yes. Yeah, sure enough, within a day or two, I'd find him do. <laughs> so I did do that. it's a bit it's a bit dastardly but I did do oh, that a couple of times works a treat and I tell you what you mm. do always come back to reading I think so if, if it's not forced on you if you're not put off it I think yeah well let's come back to your reading your fourth bookshelfy book is The Yellow Wallpaper by Charlotte Perkins Gilman 
constructed with masterful psychological precision. This book is a depiction of a woman's mental breakdown in enforced confinement after the birth of her child. The mother craves intellectual stimulation, love, understanding. Instead, she's isolated in an attic room in a mansion in the middle of nowhere and told to rest and pull herself together. Here, slowly but surely, the torturous pattern of the wallpaper winds its way into the darkest corners of her mind. I mean, just the description. I haven't read this book and I, I'm definitely going to. Like, I really want to. Why is it so brilliant to you? Well, I first read it when I was a teenager, actually, and I had asked for, I think it was the, called the Oxford Book of Gothic Tales or something like that for my Christmas present because I'd seen it in a bookshop and wanted it and I had got it. And I remember, I really remember being awake at night and my sister was asleep in the room with me and she she was fast asleep and I was staying awake and I started reading the yellow wallpaper and I remember it so clearly because it was it was like being plunged into an icy bath it was so shocking and so thrilling and I didn't know you were allowed to write about like this or that you were allowed to write about things like this and I was just immediately struck by it I never forgot it the voice is instantly compelling and instantly intimate in a way you know she lures you into this well I mean it's I should say it's a, it's so slight I mean it's called a novel or a novella but I mean I, I don't know why it's never called a short story because I mean it could be it could be termed a short story but it's always I mean I think it is a novella and, and I don't quite know what the difference is I suppose I'm not sure but it's it's just a fun, an incredible piece of work and later on I I read more about it and I realized that it's actually very autobiographical that Charlotte Perkins Gilman herself had very serious what I mean probably now she'd be diagnosed with postnatal depression but she was put in the hands of this shall we say controversial doctor in um, the turn of the century uh, Boston I think he was called Weir Mitchell and he recommended that she um, not be allowed to write that she lay down and rested that she only saw her child every now and again that she had I think she was supposed to have a diet high in dairy products I don't know just Basically, everything that kept her or helped her feel better and be sane, i.e. writing, working, was taken away from her. And she very quickly, I think, spiralled into quite serious mental illness. And so I think The Yellow Wallpaper can be read. It is an astonishing book about a woman being given the wrong kind of care. You know, she needs stimulation. She needs to be with her baby. She needs to be able to go out and meet people. And, and But she's locked in a room, essentially, in an attic because people care about her. And it's so terrifying. And, you know, it's in a book. It's called Gothic Fiction. And Gothic Fiction can be vampires and ghouls and, you know, basements and chained up uh, monsters. But it can also be, I mean, this book is as terrifying as books like that because it's somebody who is just slowly suffocating by the wrong kind of love. Did it instill any terror in you or anything that you related to from from your own experiences i'm sure any woman reading it would would feel fear yes i mean you know i think at the time what i felt was a huge sense of relief that we have moved on in the world i suppose and uh, relief that you know there were several several decades separating me from her at that point but again you know it's something we all need to keep an eye on because of course, women's bodies are very politicised at the moment. You know, we look at what's happening in America and, you know, abortion is, the abortion laws are changing. And, you know, even this week, we have a new health secretary who is quite happy to come out and say she's anti-abortion. And that's really concerning. It's really concerning that the state can interfere in women's bodies and women's lives. The main storyline of your novel, The Hand That First Held Mine, is 
about a couple struggling to come to terms with the traumatic birth of their first child and is based on your own experience um, of Nelly dying while giving birth to your son. What was the experience of, of writing this? Was it a form of therapy? Was it cathartic? I don't know if it was cathartic or a form of therapy. I think it was important to me to tell that story because I suppose in a sense, I mean, maybe there is a link, I suppose. With it. I mean, the Yellow Warpath has always been a huge influence on lots of my work. And I had the experience in hospital of not being listened to by an obstetrician and not being... I, t- I told him that I had suffered an illness as a child and I'd been told I wouldn't be able to have a natural birth. And he basically told me that was nonsense and I was going to have one whether I liked it or not. And actually what happened is after three days of quite agonising labour, the predictions of the neurologists from my childhood became true that I wasn't able to give birth to him naturally. So I had to kind of beg for a caesarean, which then again had major complications because my, my labour had been allowed to go on for too long. So in a sense, I suppose that doctor is my Weir Mitchell <laughs> in a way, certainly. And I think in writing the novel, I, you know, I wanted to write a book about very early motherhood. I remember that. I remember finding fiction, particularly there were no, I couldn't find many instances of tiny, tiny babies, very new motherhood. I think things have changed actually since I wrote that book. I think there is a lot more now. But at the time, you, you know, there are children in novels and there are a few toddlers, but not many really tiny babies, not novels about those very, very early twilight weeks where you are awake night and day and you know um you're sort of nocturnal and diurnal all at the same time and you're in this kind of milky haze and I suppose I didn't I wanted to write about how that felt and how how it could really unseat everything for you because you know when your first child is born life as you know it is over and a whole new life begins the minute they take their first breath and I wanted to explore that idea this, this young couple who are grappling with the sense that their life has been overturned and for very very good reasons I should say. (laughs) But you've written about what it was like to write with a small baby was it a struggle to keep going? It wasn't it wasn't it wasn't I mean you know in some ways I've never really quite understood that school of thought that says you can't write and have young children you know I think it's it's a bit of a nonsense really and obviously there are many women writers who have not had children and written books and there are plenty of examples of women who have and have written books and I'm not saying you have to do one or the other you know everybody makes their choice but I do I've always found it quite compatible being a mother I've always found it quite compatible with being a writer you know I get to spend a lot of my time at home I get to have I'm incredibly lucky to have had work that I really love and also got to spend a lot of time with them but they always come first in my life they know that if I'm writing and they're here they can they can come into my study there's there's never a sense that they're not allowed or anything like that (laughs) um I think as a writer you know you have to be living in the world it's good for you and I think children are amazing at dragging you out of your little ivory tower and saying you might be worrying about how to begin your novel or how to make a scene work, but they don't care. They just want you to make something with pipe cleaners or make a line out of clay. And that's, and that's very good for you, I think. It's time now, Maggie, for your fifth and final book this week, which is Gawain and the Green Knight by Anonymous. A slightly unusual choice for your final bookshelfy book. (laughs) (laughs) This is a late 14th century chivalric romance written in the Middle English dialect. The author is unknown and the title was given to the text centuries later. It's one of the best known Arthurian stories and describes how Sir Gawain, a knight of King Arthur's round table, 
accepts a challenge from a mysterious green knight. Now, presumably from its inclusion in this list, Maggie, you think that the anonymous author was a woman. Um, Can you tell us why? Well, I read this at university and I absolutely loved it. And I still do. I still reread it quite a lot. When I was at university, I had to read it in the original Middle English. Oh, wow. Is, it is quite hard going, I have to say. Wow. So I now I have several versions of it. And I do have one which has the Middle English on one page and it has an English translation on the other page. There's also an amazing and beautiful translation by Simon Armitage, which I would really recommend. And obviously it's anonymous. So nobody, nobody knows who has written it, despite the best efforts of lots of literary scholars. But I have always had, I mean, it's just a kind of instinct or a basic, very basic cellular feeling that it's written by a woman, which could possibly explain why it's anonymous. I don't know. But there's something about it. There's a kind of sensibility about it, which makes me think it's by a woman. First of all, she clearly really fancies the Green Knight. There's a long description, a lingering description of his muscles and the narrowness of his waist and his chest is really wide. And, it, and obviously, you know, I understand it could, have been, it could have been a man who was gay, clearly. But it's just, I don't know what it is. And there's a, there are, there's a huge amount of detail about clothing and patterns and fabrics and okay. the way things are laid out, rooms. But the most, the key thing for me is that among all the different Arthurian legends and iterations from this period, which I've read all of them, I have to say, I did write a dissertation about it. I was going to do a PhD about going in the Green Knight, but actually I did really badly in my final exams and that was off the cards. So I, I do have this kind of very deep love for this poem and slight deep obsession with it. And the key thing for me is that this chivalric poem has at its centre a woman and she is completely, in the whole narrative and the whole poem, she's completely sidelined. Uh, and you don't, Sir Gawain doesn't notice her at all. So basically when, when he, after the big beginning where th- he chops off the Green Knight's head, a year later he goes to find the Green Knight and he arrives at this castle. There's a really old woman sitting by the fire, but he doesn't pay her a lot of attention because there's this really beautiful and sexy woman uh, who's married to the Lord and she and Gawain have this big long flirtation. Basically the woman sitting by the fire is the key to the whole poem. She's the kind of marginal character who's in charge of everything and she has set up this whole kind of supernatural quest for Sir Gawain. So in a sense, Gawain is caught in her net. She is controlling everything. She, and she's Morgana Le Fay, obviously. And she's in charge. You know, women are at the centre of it. They are, they're marginalised. They're ignored, particularly older women. <laughs> she's being ignored because she's not, you know, beautiful anymore. But she's pulling everybody's strings like the puppet. She's the puppet master. She's the wizard in the whole scenario. Which makes me, I just think that if it, if it was written a woman, and I, I think it was, it was the woman having a bit of a laugh at the expense of all the men who think they're really powerful and in charge and off on quests and in charge of everything and ruling everything. But actually, they're not at all. She's ruling. I like this theory or, or cellular um, feeling, as you call it. <laughs> <laughs> when, when you were reading this, did you know that you wanted to be a writer? Or was that something that came up when you decided not to do a PhD? Well, it's funny. I don't know when or if at any point, actually, I thought I want to be a writer. I think there's an important distinction between wanting to write and wanting to be a writer. I didn't, even now, actually, when sometimes when people say to me, what do you do for a living? I, I often don't say I'm a writer. I say something else. I think it's a funny thing. And I think, I think feeling like a writer is, a feel, is something I haven't quite captured. And I, I hope I never do in a way, because I think maybe if I did feel I had arrived in that sense, I'd probably stop writing. So I always wanted to write and I always did write, but I never had that urge to be a writer if you see what I mean or I didn't just never thought it would happen it didn't seem possible or within my reach when people ask you what do you say you do 
<laughs> well, I used to say I was a journalist, which was half true. Yeah. And sometimes I say work in publishing. <laughs> so you know what? It's, that, it, it's true. I which say I work with lie. children. Which there is... you go. <laughs> I say I work with children because um, most of the TV shows and radio shows I do are for young people. So that, that's who we interact with the most. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Okay. Yeah, fair enough. I mean, we, so... can, all, we can all bend the truth, can't we? <laughs> yes. Um, this is obviously a text very much of, it, of its time, but, you know, so much of what you've just said is applicable and fascinating to to anyone at any time what kind of research did you do to enable you to write about these times that you you immerse yourself in renaissance italy for example in the marriage portrait and elizabethan england and hamnet well in a sense a lot of the research was library based because obviously there's no shortage of books written about either shakespeare and his world or renaissance uh, florence or ferrara I suppose what interests me, the stories about history that interest me are the are the ones on, in a sense, on the wrong side of history. It's the ones that don't necessarily appear in history books. So in order to get some kind of feel for the times and the scenario and the locations, you have to read an awful lot of history about that time. But in order to inhabit lives of people who whose history is written in white or written in water, in a sense, you have to do you have to go a bit further and do something a bit different. So in order to kind of understand what um Hathaway's life was like I did sort of physical things as well as reading about the time I planted and grew my own medicinal herb garden Elizabethan medicinal herb garden and I went on a course to learn how to make those plants into medicines and what they would be used for I can see you're smiling I think it's so brilliant no as honestly as a keen gardener a newly keen gardener it's only in the oh, last okay. like year I'm, I'm into it I'm massively into well it. welcome aboard that's all yeah, I can say yeah I'm joining uh, <laughs> so I do, and also I learnt to fly a kestrel because I, in my book I gave Agnes um, a kestrel she was a, a falconer so I did learn and that was actually the most fun thing I think I've ever done in the name of work but wow. you need to do it it's funny because I'd already written a version of the scene in which she's flying the kestrel and I had described the kestrel landing on her falconer's glove with a thud and then when I actually went and flew a kestrel, I realised that a kestrel is about the weight of a tiny kitten. It's such, it's such oh. a successful predator that it's totally silent and you can be standing there waiting for it and one minute it's not there and the next minute it's there and you haven't even noticed it land. But the falconer I went to learn with, she let me hold her golden eagle and wow, that was heavy. <laughs> terrifying also. It was enormous and holding it that proximity was terrifying. Yeah, and so I, it was really... But the kestrel is is so stealthy and so silent. So I had to go. That's why you need to do it yourself. And for Lucrezia, I wrote most of it in lockdown. So obviously I couldn't go to Italy until almost until the end of 2021 when I I pretty much... I was finishing the last drafts of the book. But I did do... I, there's a lot about art in The Marriage Portrait and I make Lucrezia an artist. And so I did order uh, raw pigment <laughs> and I ground it up and mixed it with linseed oil in oyster shells which is exactly how people would have painted then because I just wanted to understand the physicality of it I made an unbelievable mess you wouldn't believe it but it was great because I needed to know I needed to know how hard it was to grind up lapis lazuli and grind up madder root or orpiment just in I mean you don't always necessarily it doesn't always end up that kind of information doesn't always end up in the book but you need to have that sort of knowledge, in a sense, to give yourself the confidence to create a scene in which it happens. Well, it doesn't necessarily end up in the book, but it ends up in you. And what a brilliant thing. I've never had anyone on the podcast say 
she let me hold her golden eagle. <laughs> or ever in life. <laughs> and it's yeah, amazing it's quite because something. you immerse yourself in, in these worlds and then you've also given so much of, of your world. You, you've written a memoir, I am, I am, I am. Is there anything that would be off limits that you would never write about or any part of yourself that you just want to keep for yourself which won't ever be seen on the page? Well, there will be, but you see, I can't say that because <laughs> otherwise I'd be telling you. I certainly, the way I wrote my memoir, my memoir um, you know, I came up with the structure, which is non-chronological. It's organised by body part rather than by time in a sense. And having the chapters that don't come in a kind of chronological sequence does allow you to, to elide over things that actually you maybe don't want to share or things that actually, you know, several years that might just be a bit boring. And, um, and also you're, you're able not to step on the toes of other people in your life, you know, because something I learned when I was writing my memoir was that there is a sense of ownership of narrative. You know, there are stories which are mine, but they also overlap with other people's. And you have to be very careful that you're not, you know, you're not writing a book that is putting attacks on your friends and family because they may not want to be written about. And, and that's perfectly reasonable. Maggie, my final question to you is this. If you had to choose one book from your list as your favourite, and they're very different... <laughs> Which one would it be? I know. And and why? Why would it be? I would probably be going in The Green Knight because I think if I was going to be sent away or locked in the cupboard for whatever reason with one book for the rest of my life, that would be the one that would give me the most fodder, I think, I suppose. But it's really hard because then I I think that and I think, no, actually it would have to be Mr. Roberts. Oh, no, it would have to be Monique. It'd be really (laughs) hard. But I think if I had to choose one, I would probably take that one because it would probably keep me busy for the longest. Yeah. Well, you've provided us with so much fodder, as you put it today. It's been an absolute... (laughs) joy to chat to you and um, I mean we've not had any of those I don't think on the podcast so far so a lot of books that I think will provide brilliant recommendations for our listeners so thank you it's my pleasure thank you so much for having me Vic it was lovely to chat oh I'm Vic Hope and you've been listening to the Women's Prize for Fiction podcast please rate and review this podcast it is the easiest way to help spread the word about the female talent you've heard about today the Women's Prize for Fiction podcast is brought to you by Baileys and produced by Bird Lime Media. Thank you so much for listening. Thank you, Maggie, for joining me, and I'll see you next time.